In just a moment, we are going to look to the Word of God and uh, the book of Amos for our, our preaching time, our time in the Word this morning. And then um, we're going to dismiss you to have a time of family worship where you spend some time with your own family uh, focusing on the things that we learned. But I want to just pause for a moment and ask for God's help and blessing on each of us as we uh, look into His Word and as we are separated this Sunday, but I uh, look forward to be back again next week. So let's just bow before the Lord for a moment in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we thank You for the way that You are good to us, the numerous ways in which You bestow Your blessings on us. Even this morning, Lord, as we are not able to gather together, we certainly regret that, but we are grateful that we do have the means to focus together on Your Word, to share the Word of God with one another um, through a digital medium. I pray that even this morning as families gather in their own homes, as they pray together, as they sing together, um, as we hear the Word of God together, I pray that You would encourage our hearts. We thank You for this opportunity. We thank You for our church and the way in which You are working in hearts and lives. Bless us now as we look into Your Word, into this little book of Amos. Use it in our hearts and our lives. Focus our attention on You and change us to the image of Your dear Son. For it is in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to open to the book of Amos. We are participating together in a little study of the Minor Prophets. And if you've been with us, you know that we are trying to take one book per week, which can really, uh, these books seem short, so it seems very easy to digest a book in one sermon. But, but frankly, there's a lot of material in here, and so it becomes a challenge. Uh, we're intentionally kind of taking a high-level view, and so I hope that you enjoy that. I hope you benefit from that, and I hope you take what you're learning and dig into these passages a little more. I, I trust that it, it won't frustrate you uh, that we are not uh, digging deep into each of these passages, but at the same time, I do hope it encourages you to dig a little bit deeper. So this morning, we are going to uh, look at Amos, an overview of God's view on injustice and the way in which the prophet Amos uh, indicted God's people for the injustices that they were propagating in their day. I wonder, put yourself in the position of someone who has the difficult task of sharing bad news with someone else. Imagine, imagine you have to tell someone that they are going to die. Perhaps the, the worst news that you could have to share with someone and, and how heavy and weighty that must be. Perhaps someone in the medical community or or in another context where you have to share the information with someone that the prognosis is not good. It looks like you're going to pass away in the coming days. How hard must that be? How difficult would it be for you to have to share that news with someone? Well, Amos was in a similar position. He was a prophet who was called by God to tell God's people that they were going to be destroyed, that they were going to be overrun by an enemy that would be the tool of God's judgment upon them. In fact, the very name Amos 
is burden bearer. His, his very name implies that, that he had a, a burden that, that was placed upon him, and it was the burden of telling God's people the heavy, heavy message of his judgment. This is what he was called upon to deliver, and how difficult must it have been for him to deliver this message. Now, we know a little bit about the prophet Amos just from the introducing verse of the prophet. So again, if you have your Bibles open, you'll see it here as well. Amos 1.1, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa. Amos was from a small village called Tekoa that we see here in verse 1. It was located about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, he's the, actually the only prophet about whom we know his occupation or his, his life before becoming a prophet. Uh, we know that he was, uh, chapter 7 tells us that he was a, a tender of figs or sycamore fruit. And then here in verse 1 that we just read together, it says that he was a, a shepherd or a sheep breeder. The, the word that is used here in chapter 1, verse 1, is actually an unusual Hebrew word. It's only used one other place in the Hebrew Bible, and it's not the normal word for shepherd. So this rare term um, describes someone who, who cares for sheep in, an, in a different way. So if you're using a New King James or you're using a New American Standard, you'll see it translated as sheep breeder, um, the English Standard Version, shepherd. There's a little bit of divergence there on the precise meaning of the word, and it is likely that he was some sort of a dealer in sheep, perhaps a breeder, perhaps a, a herdsman that bought and sold sheep. So he was different perhaps than a simple shepherd as you might, um, might expect, but some sort of a master or owner of, of a large flock of sheep. Now we know from the, the context that Amos was a prophet from Judah, but he preached to Israel, the northern kingdom. And he did so, verse 1 tells us, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, uh, and Jeroboam II, king of Israel. He probably wrote this work shortly before a great earthquake. There's, a, there's an earthquake that's mentioned in uh, verse 1. The very last phrase of verse 1, chapter 1, says two years before the earthquake. Now, archaeologists have discovered evidence of a, uh, a record of uh, an earthquake that hit Hazor in about 760 B.C. In fact, the picture that you see here uh, is actually the excavation of a building that was laid ruin by this earthquake. And so there is historical evidence, there's archaeological evidence that tells us of this earthquake that hit Hazor in about 760 B.C. If that is the earthquake he is referring to, which he probably is, um, this puts his prophecy around 758 B.C. Now that's significant because he is prophesying approximately 30 years, less than one generation before the ultimate destruction of Israel at the hands of Assyria, which occurred in 722 B.C. And so as the prophet looks out into the future by God's revelation, 
He sees very close at hand destruction, judgment for God's people Israel, for the northern kingdom. He knows it is coming and it is a heavy burden upon him to foretell what God is going to do. But keep in mind that the people he was preaching to were experiencing relative peace. This was a time of of prosperity. It was a time, by and large, of peace. Now, if he lived at the same time as Jonah, which many Bible scholars believe that he was roughly a contemporary of Jonah, they may have actually been experiencing peace because of the message of Jonah. You remember that Assyria was one of the major enemies that continued to provoke and persecute Israel. It was one of the the thorns in their side militarily. And so as Jonah's message goes out and there is is repentance, even though it is short-lived, Israel experiences peace. So here is Amos preaching a message of, of coming ruin, coming judgment, predicting, as it were, that as a nation they would die, yet the people don't see it. The people see around them goodness and prosperity and peace. And so this is the, the message and the context in which Amos is called to preach. If you have one of the handouts that I've sent out by email, you see an outline. And I hope that perhaps this outline will help you as you read through the book of Amos this week. I hope you will do that. I hope you will um, take some time. Again, most of these minor prophets are short and uh, only nine chapters here in the book of Amos. If you uh, read them at one sitting, I think it will help you to get a good digest of what is taking place here. So in the early chapters of Amos, there's kind of an introduction. And this introduction to Amos' messages gives indictments to the surrounding nations. So if you have your Bible open, you'll see that he starts there in verse 3 with Damascus. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Now, that is a way of saying that the, the judgment is certainty. For three, yea, even for four. It is, a, it is a pronouncement that God's judgment is sure, it is certain, that, that in fact God has been merciful and has extended mercy upon mercy. It, it's, it's almost as if we say, you know, three strikes you're out, but you've gotten four. It's kind of what the prophet is saying. And so he actually does that with each of the nations that he pronounces woes upon. This judgment oracle has this formula every time. It starts with Damascus in chapter 1, verse 3. And then you notice down in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not turn away its punishment. Go down to verse 9. You see the same pronouncement um, with uh, in verse 9, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four. And then in verse 11, still in chapter 1, Edom. Uh, in chapter, uh, still in chapter 1, in verse 13, verses 13 through 15, we see Ammon indicted. And then in chapter 2, Moab, verses 1 through 3. And then he begins to come close to home. He goes just across the, the, the line to this sister nation of Judah, 
This is the southern kingdom, you'll remember. Uh, You'll remember if you looked at our, our timeline that there was a mixed bag of good and evil kings ruling in Judah over the course of their life. You may also remember that back, going back when the kingdom was divided, when Judah and Israel went separate ways, that there was this justification of false religion on the part of Israel. So I can almost imagine these, these pronouncements as they get closer and closer, and now Amos is prophesying against Judah. And boy, I can almost picture the people in Israel patting themselves on the back. See, yeah, we were, we were right to break up. We were right to set up our own false religion. We, we had good reason for disobeying the instructions of God as the indictment comes down against Judah. Seven pronouncements of judgment on surrounding nations before Amos says a word about Israel. But the final pronouncement in chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, comes against Israel. Everything that Amos has said up to this point would have, would have rung well in the ears of Israel. It, it would have been a beautiful message to them to hear that God is going to judge righteously, that He is going to lay His just judgment on the wicked nations surrounding them. I mean, these were people who had been their enemies, they had been their oppressors, they had caused them great difficulty, and I'm sure that they were thrilled to hear Amos's message of judgment. I can almost picture the, the amens rising up from the crowd as Amos preached, as he pronounced judgment against the surrounding nations, but, but it seems like It seems like here in verse 6, the amens would have come to a screeching halt. They would have, the crowd would have quieted down because now Amos is pronouncing judgment on these people, Israel, those to whom he is speaking face to face. As I think about that, I'm reminded of a couple things. A few things that I think we can take away as far as application. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that we're, we're all tempted to this, to this same reaction. The reaction of recognizing, perhaps even rejoicing in, the punishment of others, the judgment that should come to other people, the, the sin of other people, but, but then are we hesitant to recognize it in ourselves? When we see others that are doing wrong, others deserving of God's punishment, what is our reaction? Is it to think, well, well that person, that, they, they really need God's judgment, or do we stop to think, well, in what ways do I do that myself? Are we quick to see the failings of others and slow to see our own failings? Are we eager to see God's judgment placed on other people, but we don't think of ourselves as in need of that same punishment or deserving of that same punishment. As you go throughout your week and your day-to-day life, I would encourage each of us to just, when we're tempted to that, when we're tempted to that impulse to want to see others get their just deserts, and and God is just, certainly, He He will judge the wicked, But I think it also should cause us to reflect for some appropriate introspection. But what about me? 
how do I, how am I guilty of that same sin myself? Is there a way in which I am tempted towards that wrong? And so that's a lesson that I think we think about when we see this introduction from Amos. But beyond that, I think secondly, as far as application, it's ironic what Amos does because he actually actually points out in a a rather subtle way, he, he deepens the treachery of Israel, right? Because Israel is here thinking of themselves as good. Think of themselves as, you know, they have God. They are Yahweh's people. And yeah, those other nations, they, they are deserving of judgment. Yet they themselves are guilty of some of the very same things that they're quick to say amen to when Amos pr- speaks those pronouncements on other nations. And so as they, as they recognize there is a, a sin existing in the other nations, they indict themselves. This is actually one of the themes that comes through in Amos' writing. That God's people, who should know better, who, who do have God, of all people, should not be guilty of these same sins of the surrounding nations. And one other thing I want us to think about, and that is that God uses pagan nations. God uses even sinful circumstances to chasten His people. This is a tension, theologically, for us to understand that even evil things are within God's control, and sometimes God uses those evil intentions to accomplish His good purposes. But make no mistake, even though evil is within the circle of God's sovereignty, God still holds people responsible for their evil. God still holds these nations responsible for the evil that they inflict on His chosen people. And all the while, God is using it for His purposes. I want us to just briefly look this morning, and we're going to try to keep our our comments brief. I know it's harder to stay engaged when you're watching online. Um, But I I want us to look quickly at the lesson that is taught in the three sermons of Amos. Then following that, there are are several visions that are given. I'm actually going to just look at these three sermons, and then I'll let you study the visions on your own. If you're going to use the um, children's material that was sent out to you by email, it actually goes through each of those uh, those visions, so you can read about those together uh, as a family. And even if you don't have kids, you can still read the kids' story. It'll be be helpful to you. It teaches um, about Amos. But in chapters 3 through 6, Amos gives three sermons. Each of them carries a lesson which we can apply. So sermon 1 is in chapter 3. It goes through all of chapter 3 and just the very beginning of chapter 4. And in this sermon, we learn that a wicked heart is seen by taking advantage of the vulnerable, but God's people are called to defend them. So, So the wickedness of the people that Amos is preaching to is seen in the reality that they take advantage of the vulnerable. In this section, Amos paints the picture of the wealth of the Israelite people, the, the power that they enjoyed, 
the comfort, the peace that they were experiencing during that time. But then he goes on to point out that even in that context, when things were going well for them, they treated the poor horribly. They claimed to be worshipers of Yahweh. They, came, they claimed to believe in, in the justice of the one true God, yet they, they treated the poor in their midst terribly. In fact, this is such a deep-seated problem that God is going to send an army in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, an army to destroy their fortresses. Chapter 3, verse 14, to destroy their altars. Chapter 4, verses uh, 3 and 4, destroy their wealth. God is sending an army to judge them because they have been ruthless. They have been unjust in the way they have treated the vulnerable. I hope you recognize that we are richly blessed. There are many blessings that come to us. We, we enjoy so many blessings, including material blessings. If you stop and think about the, the, the relative comfort that you and I have compared to the rest of the world. We think about the, the comfort that we enjoy financially. We think about the comfort that we enjoy because of our station in life. We have rich blessings, and, and probably every person under the sound of my voice even has influence, has power over other people in some realm, whether that's work or whether that is a function of the, the wealth that you enjoy or whether it is in a position of authority that has been given to you over others. So what is this influence? So what is this wealth? So what is this, this power, this opportunity for? These are all opportunities that we can use in respect to others. We can use them rightly to help others, or conversely, we can use them to hurt others. What is the way of the world? The way of the world is push down others so that you get ahead. Cut off other people so that you succeed. God's people must be givers. They must be caretakers of others. We must be those who look for opportunities to support and to help the vulnerable. There's a lot of talk right now in our society about justice, in particular social justice. And I'm not going to take the time this morning to get into all the the particulars of, of the outworking of that, but, but let's just be clear about one thing. God believes in, God desires justice from His people. And so, although in our current context it can be difficult to, to ferret out, to untangle all of the applications of justice, don't fall into the trap of thinking that that is unimportant. Justice is important to God helping the vulnerable, caring for those that, that we have impact on is important to God. And God's people are called in a special way to see the needs that are around them, to, to leverage the opportunities they have, to leverage the power that they have for the good of others, especially those who are vulnerable. And so this morning, my friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is seen in the specific command of Christ to love our neighbor. To love God, the first commandment, is seen in a, 
in a horizontal expression to love our neighbor. This is exactly what Israel was failing to do. They were failing to love their neighbor. They were aggrandizing themselves. They were enriching themselves at the, at the cost of other people. They were raising themselves up by stepping on the poor. May we not be guilty of that. May we be people who recognize God's call for justice. And even as we see Amos' message indicting Israel for their failure to observe those important truths, may we be reminded that by God's grace, we ought to be people who care, who use opportunities that we can to help others. Well, there's a second sermon that we find here in the book of Amos, and it begins in chapter 4 and goes through the remainder of that chapter. In this second sermon, we learn that a wicked heart is seen in unwillingness to repent, while God's people are called to return to Him. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we see a description of people going to the temple. Come to Bethel, they say. Come to Gilgal, bring your sacrifices, bring your tithes. Verse 5, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, proclaim an announcement. The people are going through the proper motions of worship. These people had the right liturgy. They had the right form of worship. It was beautiful, it was grand, it was richly filled with talk of God. Yet it was empty. There was nothing to it. There was no substance. There was no heart for God. They were, they were merely participating in liturgy. Bring the right sacrifices, say the right words, say the right prayers, sing the right songs. Yet they were far from God. In fact, God had chastened them, he goes on to say in chapter 4. He chastened them again and again. He had sent them famine. He had sent them drought. He had sent them plagues. And although these warnings had come, these warnings were ignored. They were willing to sing about God, but they were not willing to turn to Him in repentance. And so, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, they were going to have to meet God's judgment. May I suggest to us that we tend to be legalistic that is to say, we do the right things because we know we're supposed to do them, but where is our heart? Empty worship, empty form, empty ritual means nothing. I read, I read often that there is, on the part of the millennials, a revival of liturgy, particularly high church liturgy. Um, it's interesting because... So often these articles speak of the, the comfort that is brought by, by this religion, by this liturgical form. Well, there may be comfort in it, but if it's empty, it's a false comfort. We can be far from God and still be religious. And so I wonder this morning, what is your relationship with God? I, I don't mean... What's your religion like? I don't mean what forms do you participate in. I, I don't mean what religious ceremonies do you go through. I mean, where do you stand in relationship with God? As we consider that question, we have to first consider the good news of Jesus Christ because 
Because keep in mind, all of us are, are in a state of separation from God by our nature. We are born sinners, separated from God. And, and in fact, we, we choose ongoing rebellion through our life, which separates us from God. We can't approach Him even, even with the highest form even with the, the greatest religious activities, we can't approach God. In fact, everything we do, the Bible says, to, uh, to try to get closer to God, to approach God is, is as filthy rags. Our goodness, the very best that we can do, is before Him as filthy rags. You see, we come to God not by works of righteousness, which we have done, the Scripture says, but we come to His mercy and His grace. I wonder this morning... Have you ever been forgiven of sin? Has there ever been a time when you have recognized your own inadequacy, your own separation from God, and recognized that your only hope is depending completely on the finished work of Jesus Christ? This is the good news of the gospel. This is the message that Jesus Christ is the one who can put us in right relationship with God and He alone. You know, if you've never repented of your sins and depended on Jesus Christ, if you've never been born again, we would love to have the opportunity to take a Bible and answer your questions so that you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven and you're in right relationship with God. Please feel free to reach out to us by our website or by Twitter, um, by calling us, by texting us, and let us help you in that journey. I wonder if you are a believer this morning, you, you have repented of your sin and turned to Jesus Christ. We all still fall into these patterns of doing the right thing, following the right form, the religion looks good, but, but where's our heart? May we be called again and again to repentance. You see, we come to Christ and we're saved once, once for all through repentance. But then as believers, we, we live that repentance. We're, we're repenting people, not just repentant at one time in the past, but we are repenting people. And so I wonder, do we check our hearts this morning? Do, do you and I go back and, and look at our own hearts and say, where do I stand before God? Is, is this just become an empty form to me? Or am I returning to God again and again, turning from my sin, turning from my way, purging that from my heart and dedicating myself once again to God? Do you have a, a practice of repentance? That's what God's people are called to. Don't just go through the motions, but be one who comes back to God again and again. Well, that's the second message. There's a brief interlude before the third sermon. This interlude is chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, where Amos actually laments. He, he, he has a period of mourning for the wicked because of the judgment that is to fall. So he mourns Israel. And then he launches into sermon number 3, beginning in chapter 5, verse 18. In this sermon, we learn that a wicked heart is seen by believing in false hopes, while God's people are called to trust in Him. Because Israel was God's chosen people, they thought, well, it'll all be okay. We won't face judgment, they thought. They assumed that the prosperity preachers of their day had the message right. You know, God wants to bless you. God wants to to prosper you financially. He wants you to have plenty of money to fulfill the destiny that He has laid out for you. They believed that. They believed the message that the, 
that the prosperity preachers said that, that no matter who you are or what you've done, your best days are still ahead. But that message was a false hope. It was a false comfort. And Amos goes through line by line and reveals to them that their trust in their military alliances, their trust in their religious form, their trust in the fact that they had, they had the name Yahweh, those were false. They were fleeting. They were weak. They were trusting in the wrong thing. You know, the same is still true today. The message that is popular to hear is one of encouraging people in their sins. Oh, it's all okay. As long as you have some form of God, you're good. Amos preached that God's blessings were for those who feared God's word. Chapter 3. God's blessings were for those who, who returned, with him, returned to Him with all of their heart. Chapter 4. Those that worshipped Him from their heart. Those that acted justly and righteously. Chapter 5. Those that rejected pride and self-sufficiency. Chapter 6. And so these visions that follow show God's willingness to forgive, but that those days had passed, that God's judgment was now going to fall upon the people of Israel because, because they were trusting in false hope. They were, first of all, taking advantage of the vulnerable. They, they were unjust people, and God would not judge the pagan nations for their injustices and yet let Israel go for their injustice. Secondly, because they refused to repent. They ref refused to return to God. And then, because they were trusting in false hope. I wonder this morning, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your goodness, yourself, your form, your religion, your wealth, your power, your strength, the, the family that you've come from, the religious heritage that you might have, what are you trusting in this morning? All of those are false hopes. And just as Amos called Israel back to God, to repentance, to dependence on Him, to forsake their evil way and to turn to God alone, we are called to the same, even in this age. Oh, but we can't stop without reminding ourselves that we ultimately that, that all of us fail at some point in these very things that Amos was indicting the people for. And this is where we're reminded of repentance. In our age, we recognize the completed work of Jesus Christ that provides for our sin. If we will come to Him in, in faith and repentance, depending on Jesus Christ alone, He is the forgiver of sin. And as we live in the light of that reality, as we live in that gospel each day, we can rejoice knowing that grace comes to us through Jesus Christ. May we be encouraged this morning that God restores His people. The last part of the book of Amos rejoices that God will restore. He will leave a remnant. He will not utterly destroy His people. He will bring them back to Himself. And for the believer this morning, we can know that to be true as well.
We can know that Jesus Christ provides right relationship with God, restoration, renewal as we repent each day. I thank you again for joining us this morning. We're going to dismiss you here in just a moment to spend some time in family worship. I trust that throughout this week you'll meditate on this book and the lessons of it and that we will be people who are dedicated to, to Christ, dedicated to justice, and most of all, repenting. Have a great week.